Hey, and welcome to this podcast by Chestnut Mountain Church, located in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where our mission is to saturate the world by making disciples. We invite you to check out our website at chestnutmountain.org and follow us on social on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at chestnutmtn underscore to learn more about who we are. There are also video episodes located on our YouTube channel, along with other content not on this podcast. This episode features a sermon replay from Sunday's message. Let's take a listen. I'm excited to to be jumping in the text with you today. Today, mostly what we're going to be talking about is contentment. Contentment. Contentment, being content is not one of my favorite subjects, if I could just confess that before you. I don't, I don't like, I like going places. I like building things. And being content isn't the first word that I put my stake on, but it's very important when it comes to the Christian life. And in fact, Paul describes it as the secret. So today, I don't know what you came here looking for, but I'm going to give you the secret today. The secret to the Christian life, because that's what Paul gives us in Philippians chapter 4. And the secret to the Christian life is joy-filled contentment. That's the secret. The secret is Christ is enough, so I will be joy-filled in my contentment. And the Apostle Paul is in a very undesirable place when he writes these words in Philippians chapter four. Remember, he's, he's chained to a guard under Roman imprisonment and, and he's awaiting trial in Rome where life or death could be decided. And, and his message is still consistently, I have joy and I am content. If I was chained to a guard, Jared, me, if I was there chained to a guard, I would not be saying, I'm good. I'm content, I'm joyful. But many have called the book of Philippians the book of joy because more than a dozen times, Paul talks about joy and rejoicing. And he's content. So what made him content in an undesirable place? What made him content? I think that's important for us to study today because I think it's applicable for us in life. You may not be chained to a guard, but you might be chained to something. You may not be uncomfortable without a pillow at night to sleep on, but you might be uncomfortable about something in your life. And we need to learn what this contentment, where this contentment is coming from. This is an aged Paul, like an elderly Paul. I just want to contextualize this. He is, he's trapped. He's facing death and he's aged like you know when you first get up out of bed and you can't walk like you know you're starting to kind of get to that point I'm 33 so I'm not old I get it but I'm actually getting to that point where I I can't fully use my knees like I used to and I'm thinking about that and and getting out of my plush bed in the morning is difficult imagine getting up off the floor having been chained to a guard this is Paul and he was a lot older than I am in this scene, but, but look at what we can see about his state of being. He's, he's calm. He's grateful. He's full of thanksgiving. He, he's determined as well to do what he was supposed to do. And he's at peace and he's full of joy. And because of all this, he's content. And we see in, in Philippians chapter four, Paul is expressing deep gratitude and delight because in his deep poverty, that little church in Philippi had stepped up to meet his need financially. They had offered him gifts to keep him going in his ministry. And he's full of joy and he's thanking them for it. The interesting thing is scholars believe that the gift that the Philippian church sent to Paul really didn't amount to much. Like it wasn't a very big gift. But Paul was over the moon about this gift. He makes a huge deal of it. And he uses language like, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly at how you care for me. This comes as a great challenge to me before we jump into the text. It comes as a great challenge to me that Paul was so overjoyed about this small little 
gift. Are we so easily moved to gratitude? That's my question. Jared, are you so easily grateful about the gifts of others or do you look down your nose at a gift that you didn't prefer? Spurgeon put it this way, some would grumble over a roasted ox and here is Paul rejoicing over a dinner of herbs. That may not connect with us because we don't like ox and we don't eat herbs unless you're my mother-in-law and you've got a whole garden of herbs and my wife likes herbs too. So we eat herbs and we eat like birds, but <laughs> happy Labor Day. <laughs> Paul, Paul was content. Paul was content with where he was and where he was was not a normal place to be content in. That's the context. So now we're gonna go to Philippians chapter four, if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to read this with me and then we're gonna dig in and, and unpack it a little more, okay? Philippians chapter four, I'm gonna read it all the way through. So buckle up and enjoy it. Philippians chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Are you proud of the fact that I didn't stumble over those names? Verse three. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Nothing better can be said of you than if your name is written in the book of life. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You indeed, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to our God. And Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What a beautiful chapter of scripture. We have multiple, I would say three at least, verses in here that we quote all the time, that we remember I'm so excited to unpack that today and, and, and finish out our series in Philippians. And, and I want to take some time, especially on these verses that, that we typically remember and might use out of context, because I think it's important for us 
to read the context and understand what's happening here and what Paul's talking about. For example, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does that really mean? What are the all things that we can do? But the broader point of this passage of scripture is about contentment. See, the Philippian church, remember, is, is giving to Paul to help him continue his ministry. And Paul is grateful for their giving, but he says, I don't need it. I'm just grateful for it. And mostly because of the fruit that's going to abound on your account. I'm grateful to see you growing and you developing and you becoming a mature disciple. The thing we're going to focus on the most today, as I've already told you, is Paul gives us the secret to the Christian life. The secret. He literally says, the secret. Like, why are Christians so happy? How can you be diagnosed with cancer and still come into church and raise your hands and worship to God? How? Why? What's underneath that? What's the secret? How can you lose your son tragically and continue to worship with joy in your heart? Or on the other side, how can you, how can you earn all of this wealth and gain all of these awards and yet still not take the credit but give it all back to God? What's that about? What's the secret? Paul says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and need, of scarcity and abundance. I've learned the secret. Here's the secret again. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Joy-filled contentment is possible because Christ is Enough, and that all begins with the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. You don't know that Christ is enough until you know that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is yours in Christ Jesus. Having peace with God precedes experiencing the peace of God, and having this peace is the reason we can be content in all things and in all circumstances. So Paul puts verse seven right in the middle of this section and he surrounds it. Put, put verse seven on the screen, if you will, from Philippians chapter four. He surrounds this verse with application for us today. But I want to start with verse seven because it's the beginning of contentment. Verse seven, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that surpasses all capacity for thought. The peace of God. What is this peace of God? And what does this mean to guard your heart and your mind? The word guard here speaks of a military action. It's a very active, it's, it's not passive peace at all. It's, it's active. It's, it's something that, that the peace of God is, is guarding over your heart and your mind actively. And this peace is yours, but we can't have the peace of God until we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we've been justified, forgiven and justified, named righteous, since you've been declared righteous, and now because of Christ, God sees Christ instead of you. Therefore, since you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. And because you have peace with God, if you have peace with God, then you can experience the peace of God that surpasses all capacity for thought and you can have it guarding your mind and your heart. We can be at peace because we've been adopted. We've been redeemed. We've been reconciled. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and because we have this peace, 
We can be content no matter what comes because we know the end before we get there. But we have a role to play in this. And Paul surrounds this verse, verse seven, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind. This, this verse is surrounded by application for us. So I wanna talk about that. The, these keys to contentment, if you will, and I usually don't have an outline, but we gotta make it a long way today. So I've got one to make sure that we make it a long way today. And these are gonna be the six keys to contentment. Paul gives us six keys to contentment in this text. Number one, rejoice in the Lord always. The first key to contentment, rejoice in the Lord always. Verse four, what does it say? Philippians four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. A better translation is, again, I will keep on saying rejoice. It's like he's leading the choir Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, and again, and again, I will keep on saying, rejoice. This, this is a key to contentment. Rejoice. Joy is mentioned more than a dozen times in this letter. Remember, I mentioned that earlier. Sometimes this is called the book of joy because Paul is describing this joy and now he's telling us to rejoice, but you cannot give what you do not have. So you have to have joy in order to rejoice. Again, it comes from a deeper place. It's not manufactured. When, when he says rejoice, he's not expecting you to do that from nowhere. He's talking to Christians who eternally have cause for rejoicing. We just have to remember the reason for that rejoicing. Because if we dig deep into what God has done for us and, and we understand his grace towards us, we understand that we always have reason to rejoice. We always have reason to be joyful. The essence of this word Rejoice means to delight in God's grace. To delight in God's grace. But it takes an active and consistent delighting. We have to go to the table and feast upon the grace in order to have the depth of joy that he's offered. In order for the joy of the Lord to be our strength. How amazing how amazing that God makes delight a duty and joy a command. So how can we rejoice no matter what? We make God our joy and place all our joy in him because he is unchanging. The quickest way to lose your joy is to put your joy in things that are going to be lost, yourself or things that you have. That's the quickest way to lose your joy because it's going to fade eventually with the things that you put your joy in. But if your joy is placed in the unchanging and faithful one, it's not going anywhere. Rejoice in the Lord always. Number two. Hold on to the world loosely. Hold on to the world loosely. There's an old classic rock song that I'm not gonna sing that some of y'all might know about this. Hold on loosely. Verse five. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. What does that have to do with holding on to the world loosely? I'll tell you, thanks for asking. Reasonableness is better translated gentleness or moderation. So Paul is saying, be cautious, be, be careful with the world and with the goods of the world. Hold on loosely. Be, let your reasonableness be known. Let your gentleness and your moderation be known because the Lord is at hand. He's coming back. Remember, he's coming back. Hold on loosely to this place. The problem is not how much you have. The problem is your attitude towards what you have. He doesn't expect you to have nothing. <laughs> he expects you to hold on loose enough to give it away when it's time. I always say that again. The problem is not how much you have. The problem is your attitude towards what you have. 
Let your moderation be known. Take the world as it comes, but hold on loosely to it, not allowing it to command your senses. My hero, Charles Spurgeon, just one more quote for you today, if you're lucky. Charles Spurgeon says this, if you idolize any earthly good, your peace will surely depart. But keep the world under your feet and the peace of God shall keep your heart. It's worth another. If you idolize any worthly good, your peace will soon depart. But keep the world under your feet and the peace of God shall keep your heart. Put it in its place. Hold on loosely to it. Okay, number three. This comes from verse six. Number three, be anxious about nothing. Do not be anxious about anything, Paul says, but in everything, by prayer, with thanksgiving and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious about nothing. This is a difficult one. I want to be clear that I'm not trying to get in the, the nuance and the complexity of clinical anxiety. That's not what I'm digging into here. But anxious thoughts and worry and things that worry is a big one. You know, the, the first thing that worry attacks, I believe, is peace. First thing that worry attacks is our peace. This is what makes peace so important, that, that the peace of God could rule your heart. The, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. That worry could be silenced because of how strong our peace is. Be anxious about nothing. But here's the hard reality that we have to consider today. When we worry, we are displaying a measure of unbelief. And we're putting ourselves in the control room and we're taking the lead from God as if we don't trust that he can do any better. I'm taking control for myself when I worry. I'm, I'm, I'm being anxious about what could be or what should be or what needs to happen. And I'm, I'm just taking control just a little bit. And I'm proving my unbelief. Remember the invitation in 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast it all on him because he cares for you. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It may not be eliminated in a night. In fact, it most likely will not. But if you continue to cast your anxiety on him who cares for you and you continue to relinquish control and allow him to be in control. There's another song that just came into my head that was a little more new about taking the wheel and stuff. If you let him be in control, this is how we prove. This is how we prove what we trust God with. How much do we really trust him? Do not be anxious about anything. Paul gives us a command, like not an option. You have no reason to worry. You have no reason to fear because the God over all is over all for a reason and you can trust that. He is good. He is faithful. He's never going to falter. Number four. Pray about everything. Verse six, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. We have no idea what we are missing out on when we refuse to make time to pray. We have no concept of the potential and the power of prayer. We've refused to make time for it early in the morning, throughout the day, at the end of the day. I got up this morning and I felt like, man, I've wasted time. I could have been praying. If, if we understood the gravity, the power, and the potential of this connection with God, direct connection by the Holy Spirit, 
Isaiah 26, 3 says this, you will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace for it is trusting in you. Write that down, Isaiah 26, 3. This is huge. And that was the NIV, I think. That's a great translation of it. I'll read it again, Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace for it is trusting in you. This is the essence of prayer, like a mind that is dependent on him, a, a mind and a will and a heart that's, that's working to align itself with the will and the heart of God, dependent upon him. Like waking up in the morning and the first thought is not Instagram or Facebook, but it's connecting with God. For you will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace. Why am I not at peace? Well, are you dependent on God? Are you depending on him? Are you in everything praying? Prayer in general is communication with God. I think we know that. Supplication here is prayer as well, but it's more specific. Supplication is when you're asking God for something directly. You're asking something of him. Supplication. Make your requests known. This is biblical. Like, we can bring our requests to him. We can ask of him. Isn't that awesome? So in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. This, this is all about our participation. Because God already knows what we need even before we ask. That's what the Bible says. God already knows what we need even before we ask. But he's invited us in. He's invited us in to participate. Let your requests be made known to God. I used to struggle with this. God, why do you want me to let my requests be made known to you when you already know all things? Well, he wants a relationship and he's inviting us in. And this should bring us deep gratitude and thanksgiving that he's offered it to us. Choose, number five, choose a thankful attitude. Choose a thankful attitude, but in everything, verse six, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving. This is an attitude, this is significant, and the impact of thankfulness on a mind and heart is very underrated. What an attitude of thanksgiving does for your soul and your mind and your heart is so underrated. When your heart is full of gratitude, your heart, it will be full of peace. There's a connection here. You know, the essence of thanksgiving is God is good and I don't deserve it. It's kind of twofold. Like when we're really thankful to God, it's this understanding that he is good and that we don't deserve it. And we're reminded over and over as we go through life, we have reason to be thankful. And choosing a thankful attitude puts us in the right posture. The right posture towards God is it's all grace. It's all grace. Where I come from, it's all gravy, you know, but that's not what I mean. It's all grace. It's all grace. And you are enough anyway, God, so I don't even need all this. The same attitude as the Apostle Paul. I don't even need all this. But I'm thankful for it. Choose the thankful attitude. Number six, fill your mind with the right things. Paul focuses on our mind here. It's very important because what you put in your mind matters. A mind at peace with God will think about these things. In verse 8, maybe. Yes, verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Like, it's intentional. Paul wasn't just rattling off a bunch of phrases that sounded good together. He's giving us categories of thought. Think about this for a second. 
It's not enough. Let's take one of these for example. Uh, the lovely. Lovely or beautiful. It's not enough to look at something and think about how beautiful it is if it's not also true and just. You see, Paul's enlarging our mind to say, look at this in these categories. Understand that, that something may be beautiful, but if it's not true, you don't need to be thinking about it. Or if it's not, maybe if it's true and it's just, but it's not commendable, like it's going to bring offense to someone some of you know what I'm talking about, like we, those people in your life that just stand on the truth and don't waver from the truth, but it's actually bringing great offense and disunity to everybody because of the way that they're delivering it. Paul says, think about these things. Think about these things. Think about how this, this could be categories of thought to help you keep your mind at peace and on the right things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, think about these things. Look at Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, the testing, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world, the patterns of sin, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or the, the verse that my mom loved to quote over me when I was a kid, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Take every thought captive. Take every thought captive. Take every thought captive. Don't let them in. Because what we let in our mind matters. And the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. I believe that as we practice these six things that Paul gives us here, the Holy Spirit will work about a peace that surpasses all understanding in our heart and in our mind, and you will find joyful contentment in all circumstances. He goes on in verse 13, and he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is he talking about here? Paul, what do you really mean? Because I've seen that on people's eyes when they're playing sports, and I've seen that written on shoes, and I've, I've seen that on big posters in offices. I've, I've seen that with people putting it maybe as a tattoo. I don't know. I've seen that. What does it really mean? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is most certainly not teaching us that we can do all things that we put our minds to. Anything that you put your mind to, you can do. It's not what Paul's teaching here. And he's not teaching that God will help you do all the things that you want him to do. That's not what he's teaching. Paul is teaching that you will be granted the strength through Christ to be content in all things. I'm going to say it again. Paul is teaching that you will be granted the strength through Christ to be content in all things because he is enough. Your strength comes from him. This is the secret to life, trusting that Christ is enough. Paul found the secret, and he put it really plainly here in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, which we studied a couple of weeks ago. But whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Holding on loosely. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Does that mean that we need to throw all of our things in the garbage? No. It means we should count it as worthless in comparison to what is all worth everything. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is what Paul says when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So let's break this down quickly here. First question I want to ask, where does the strength come from? If 
I've been given strength to do all things. Where does this strength come from? The answer, Christ. We can do all things. That's our action. Through Christ who strengthens us, that's his creation. It comes from Christ. He is the creator. We are his actors. He is the author and we are the characters in the story. He has written it and we have a part to play. We're not puppets. We do get a part to play and it's our responsibility to come underneath him as the author and to receive strength from him as we go. We might be driving the car, but he created everything about the car. And he created everything about our brains and how our brains control our bodies and how our bodies are pumped with blood through our heart that keeps us going, which is, needs oxygen that's breathed that he designed and created it to be breathed the way that it's like. <laughs> He's the author. We're the characters but we still have an extremely active role to play. That's why he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can face famine. I can face abundance. I can face need and I can face bounty through Christ who strengthens me. The second question I want to ask is, when does the strength come? Because I think this is important. If we've been given strength from Christ, where or when does it come? And I think the answer best is stated with daily. When does the strength come? Daily. Notice the tense here. Paul doesn't say through Christ who has given you strength, past tense. He says through Christ who strengthens, who strengthens. The manna from heaven lasted for one day and they tried to save it and it molded. Through Christ who strengthens. This is similar to the way, the, the way that the, 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 the Israelites approached the manna is similar to the way that we approach Christianity or religion or church if we're not careful. Looking back on the good old days and hoping that they will carry us through today. How silly is that? When he's provided for us new mercies today, when he's provided for us grace for today, every day, overflowing. How silly is it to justify our salvation with a prayer that we prayed once rather than a real living, breathing relationship with the God who saved you and continues to live with you and walk with you? Shouldn't we take our confidence from the living, breathing, active relationship rather than a box that we checked long ago? Strength comes from Christ and it's available daily. What's the purpose of the strength? This is the last question here. The purpose of the strength is that in all things you may be content. That's it. I want to say it again that, that it's about contentment. It's about Contentment. Paul says this is the secret, that, that you can face plenty and hunger and abundance and need because Christ is enough. This is the secret. It's not the secret to win the football game. It's not the secret to pass the test that you need to pass. It's not the secret to getting the promotion that you need. It's not the secret to getting the outcome that you desire. It's the secret to being content no matter what the outcome. That's what we're talking about here. Christ is enough. And because of that, I am content. But not only is Christ enough, he will also provide all you need. Not only is he enough without giving us anything, but he's providing and has provided all that we need. Look at verse 19. Philippians 4 verse 19. This is the last verse we'll look at today. And my God will supply every need of yours according to to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's a lot. It's almost as if Paul says here, 
Just as God has through you filled me up, so shall he by Christ fill you up. Because the the translation from the original language is probably closer to say, my God will fill up all you need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Fill up (laughs) to overflowing. There's a story in 2 Kings about a widow who had these jars and then she, she didn't have anything enough to pay her debtors. And Elisha came and said, find all the jars that you have, close the door behind you, line them up on the table and just start filling them up. Well, where's it going to come from? It'll be there. Just close the door behind you and trust it. She gathered as many jars as she could and all of them were full. And when, when she got to the last jar, she asked her son, hey, go get me another jar. And the and son said, that's all the jars we have. And it stopped pouring. And Elisha said, go and sell these jars of oil and pay off your debts and then live on the rest. What can we see? We can see that our God is a God of abundance and we can see that he will supply everything we need. Did the source stop producing oil for the widow because the source ran out of oil? No, the source stopped producing oil for the widow because she didn't need any more right then. I wish I had time for that, but I don't, so I'm just gonna keep moving. Christ is the only source and his riches are endless. You've heard it rightly said, maybe. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus and nothing is everything. And there's no other equation that works. You can't add things to Jesus and expect to get everything because he alone is enough. He alone. The gospel is clear that that he was crucified for for me in, in my place as a substitute for me. He took on the sin that I deserved. And then on the third day, in accordance to the scripture, he rose from the dead and he conquered sin and death and hell. He conquered it. And then he, he ascended back to heaven and he's there now preparing a place for all those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And he's coming back one day. The Lord is at hand. He's coming back one day. And when he does, he will come for those who have been forgiven of their sin. If you've received this salvation by faith, your sins have been forgiven and your future is secure. But if you haven't, today is the day. You just need to throw your trust onto Jesus as Savior and Lord and and have faith in his name. He is and always will be enough. I want to close with a story from the 1800s. I love reading old stories because when I come to church, I can make sure with Joel Sneed that they're accurate, you know, because he makes sure that everything I say is accurate. There was a man who worked for the New York Post. His name was Robert Conwell. He was a foreign correspondent in the late 1800s and they sent him to Baghdad to go and and look at and, and study the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And when he was there, he hired a tour guide to be able to give him more history as he was looking at this area in the Middle East. And the tour guide was telling him all these stories and he was getting tired of the stories. He's trying to ignore him, but he kept telling him more stories. And then the last story that he told him changed everything for Robert Conwell because this last story that the guide told Robert turned into a book that he wrote later called Acres of Diamonds. And it turned into many, many, many speaking engagements that ended up making him enough money to start a small university, now is not so small, called Temple University. But that was started by Robert Conwell. Maybe you've heard of it. Go Owls. I don't know. That's their mascot. Sorry, Owls. Anyway, not the point. Not the point. 
They're burgundy. That's not the point either. Just need to get all that out. So Robert's listening to this story from the tour guide. He's telling him about a farmer, a Persian farmer that's very wealthy, that owned all this land. And the farmer's name was Ali Hafed. And this farmer was was content. He had everything. He has a great family. He's got a great farm. He's got wealth. He's got land and, and, and riches in his land. He's, he's got everything he needs. And he was living a great life with his family there until one day an old priest passed through his land. And the old priest began to talk with Ali about the riches that could be if he were to find diamonds. And the old priest was describing diamonds, diamonds, like these stones that they come, they're precious stones because of how they're made. And he was telling him about how they were made and telling him about how it takes intense heat and it takes a long amount of time and intense pressure to make these diamonds. And they're so rare and they, they're formed in the deep in the earth and then they come up to the surface. And if you find them, you could be wealthy. Just a handful could buy you a whole country. Just a handful. If you were to find diamonds, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even be able to imagine the wealth. And, and each of your sons would, would be able to just rule. So Ali Hafed went to bed that night, a poor man. He got up that morning, a rich man, went to bed that night, a poor man. Not because he was poor, but because he was discontent. He goes to bed and all he could think about was finding diamonds and finding riches. And so the next morning he asks the old priest when they got up, where do I find these diamonds? And the priest tells him, if you go and you look at the base of, of a mountain and if there's a river or a stream at the base of the mountain with white sand and you, and you move the white sand around, sometimes you could find diamonds. You just need to find where these diamonds are. They could be anywhere. And so Ali said, I will find those diamonds. I'm going to make my riches. I'm going to make my family proud. So he sold his farm, he collected all his money and interest, he left his family there with a neighbor, and he went across the world trying to find diamonds. He journeyed through Palestine, he wandered on into Europe, he's looking all over the place. He's spending all of his money, and he can't find any of the diamonds. And he gets to a place where he's left with nothing but rags, and he's standing on this cliff in Spain, And there's these massive waves coming in and he's thinking about his life and he's thinking about everything that he's lost. And he just gives into the temptation and he jumps in the ocean and, and never comes up again. Leaves his family behind, leaves everything behind and just takes his own life in the ocean. Meanwhile, another farmer bought his land and that farmer one day was on his camel. He was riding around the land and he goes up to a stream next to a mountain and the camel starts drinking in the stream and the farmer sees something shiny in the stream. He picks up this rock that was black and dark, but on one part here and one part there, it was shiny. Like when the sun would hit it, it was just brilliant lights. Wow, that's kind of cool. So he takes it back home. He puts it on his mantle. And a few weeks later, the same old priest came through the land again and stopped at this new farmer's land that used to be Ali Hafed's land. And he sees this rock on the mantle and he says, that's a diamond. That's a diamond. The old farmer says, what's a diamond? So the old priest begins to tell him what the diamond is. He begins to tell him how rich he might be. And he begins to ask him, where did you find that diamond? There may be more where you found that diamond. And the farmer said, I'll take you to where I found it. So they go out and they look and they begin to run their hands through the stream and the white sand. And they begin to find diamonds on diamonds on diamonds on diamonds on diamonds. True story. The Golconda Diamond Mine was on this land and was discovered by this farmer. And this diamond mine was one of the 
greatest diamond mines still to this day in the history of the world. And the, some of the crown jewels in, around the world are worn that were discovered in this diamond mine at Ali Hafed's land. The crown in England has a diamond from this mine. In Russia has a diamond from this mine. Some of the largest in the world have come from this mine. The same land, the same river, the same garden that Ali Hafed left behind. There had literally been acres of diamonds right under his feet all along. And you see, the funny thing about things is you can never get enough. Ali had everything that he needed. He, he was content until one day somebody gave him an idea of something that was more. Because I'm here to tell you today, there's always going to be just that much more. There's always going to be something that's just that much greener on the other side. It's the thing about things is you can never get enough. It's endless. But the good news today is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This can be yours. This contentment this joy, this peace that surpasses all understanding. Everything that Paul writes about in the fourth chapter of Philippians can be yours, but you can't have the peace of God until you have peace with God. You can't have the joy of God until you've been saved by his grace. And so if today you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, make it today that you turn to him, that you turn from your sin, and you turn to him as Savior and Lord. And may we be a church known for our contentment, content that Christ is enough. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you made a decision or if you have any questions about salvation or anything about this Christian journey, one of our pastors would love to connect with you. So to connect and find out what your next steps are, go to our website at chestnutmountain.org slash next steps, and there will be a form for you to fill out so one of our pastors can connect with you. We also want you to do three things right now. Number one, leave a review on this podcast. Tell us what you think. And also, a review allows us to reach even more people. Number two, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already so you don't miss an episode during the week. And number three, we want you to go check out our Chestnut Mountain Church YouTube channel. So maybe there's some visuals in this episode that you couldn't see but wanted to see. And that's why we have video versions of these episodes along with other content not featured on this podcast right now on our YouTube channel. Lastly, we invite you to join us live for worship on Sunday mornings in person at 9 o'clock or 1045 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or online at 1045 as well. Learn more about us on our website at chestnutmountain.org. And don't forget to follow us on social at chestnutmtn underscore for more encouragement and to see all what God is doing in and through CMC. We love you, we're praying for you, and we'll see you next time.